Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Right, how's everyone doing? All happy? Good. Right, so this is, this is Palm Sunday. The clue's on the, the stage here. Um, <laughs> Palm Sunday. So what is it all about? Why do we, why do we remember Palm Sunday? Um, well, I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the triumphal entry. So this, this scene that Joe read this morning, we'll, we'll read that again in a minute, uh, of what actually happened with Jesus on a donkey. Why did Jesus ride on a donkey? Um, and, and then I'm going to talk about the fact that actually it didn't... What the Jews expected uh, and what Jesus actually accomplished were two different things. Um, so I want to talk about Jesus' real mission and what, he, and what he really achieved. And, you know, we may even talk about time travel as well. So... Palm Sunday. <laughs> Palm Sunday is one of the, one of the few um, incidents uh, in Jesus' life which is recorded in all four Gospels. So I guess that means it's quite important. Um, and when you put it together, you realise that actually it was a really significant event. But um, one of the things that I didn't realise until I looked at this a bit more closely was the, was the political environment, was the religious environment and actually just how much of a sort of political pressure pot it was at the time. So I want us to think about that. So we know that Jesus rode, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey or a colt um, that had never been ridden before. His disciples put their cloaks uh, on the donkey for Jesus to sit on it. Multitudes of people, we don't know how many, came out to see him. Um, and they laid their um, palms, palm leaves on, on the floor and their cloaks before, before him to ride over. And they held him uh, as king, um, uh, as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But unfortunately, six days later, six days later, the cries of Hosanna suddenly changed and the cries were, crucify him. Crucify him. May have even been the same people. So what happened to turn this amazing, glorious celebration into a situation where the people were calling for his death. And that's what I want us to just think about this morning. So it's a sobering reminder, really, of what can happen to lots of religious people when you disappoint them and when, or when you have the wrong expectations. You see, Jesus didn't come to meet um, our expectations. He came to meet our needs, didn't he? And so that's for me, it's a story of, the, of, of uh, Palm Sunday in a nutshell. Right, let's move on and well, let's read the scripture together again so we know what we're talking about. So Matthew 21, verse 1. As I said, it's in all four Gospels, uh, but I'll read it from Matthew. So now when the time drew near, um, when, sorry, when, when, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them and sat on them. And there was a very great multitude... Um, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple, and he drove out all who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And I think we'll stop there. So, let's move on to the next slide. What? Bit of a change, change of tack here. What, what does this image conjure up for you? Back to the future. Do you know what car that is? Anyone know? So, this is not just any car. It's, it's a time machine. Uh, you, might, you might have got the impression by now that I quite like time travel films. Anyone like time travel films? Well, let's, what's your favourite time travel film? Interstellar. Okay, good one. Any, any, any more? Time Traveller's Wife. The Time Traveller's Wife. Good. I'm glad you didn't say Hot Tub Time Machine, Paul. Uh, any more? Bill and Ted, yeah. Bill and Ted. Or, or Bogus Journey. Time Cop was a classic in the 90s, I think. Um, I like Safety Not Guaranteed. If you haven't heard of that one, look it up. It's brilliant. But anyway, the <laughs> this is slight, it's, it's tenuous, I know, but it is irrelevant. Um, I want us to imagine, I want us to put our minds back into the time of Jesus in Palestine. Okay, so I want us to imagine if we got in that DeLorean and we were to set the time, what on earth would it be like? It's easy to sit here in a nice hall with our iPads and our projectors, and think we know what it was like, but we don't. This was a dusty, smelly, hot environment under pressure. The Romans were killing people. The Jews were, were on the brink of another revolt that would probably lead to lots of people being crucified again. Um, in a few more years, the entire uh, city would be completely overturned. Um, this, was, this was a really pressurized environment. Um, going back to the time of Jesus' birth, you had Herod the Great, who was king of Judah. He served as a puppet for Caesar Augustus, um, who wasn't exactly a nice emperor. Um, and, and so this was the environment that, that Jesus was born into. And then we had um, Herod Antipas, who was, who was the king when Jesus was, was uh, in his ministry. We had a guy called Pilate, who was a Roman governor. Um, a kind of puppet, and, and then we had corrupt priests, we had uh, oppressive religious leaders, um, and this was the environment in, in which Jesus was, was ministering. Now, how many, a quick question for you, how many, peop- how many people do you think were in the city of Jerusalem uh, when Jesus came in on the donkey? I mean, because I, I, I had always thought of it as kind of like a, a few hundred, you know, a handful of people but actually, looking at estimates, that's, I was, I'm quite wrong about that. There were a lot more people. How many? Any? any? 3,947. Oh, that's, that's, that's very accurate. Uh, <laughs> no. So, well, estimates, are co- um, I don't know whether you can believe <laughs> Somewhere between 50,000 and 500,000 people. 
That's quite big, isn't it? I mean, how many people live in the city of Southampton, for example? Any, anyone have an idea? 236,000, if Wikipedia is right, I don't know. So, you know, you're talking about a huge amount of people. And Jesus is coming into this, into this situation. But he comes as the Prince of Peace. Um, you know, he comes as the, as the Prince of Peace. But what I want us to do is just for a minute, let's jump into the time machine again, okay? And let's go back 170 years before Jesus was born. Um, there's a guy called... Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a Greek king, and he attacked and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Um, he ordered his soldiers to enter the Jewish temple and slaughter a pig. And, and you might understand that that was a, a hugely offensive thing, um, because the pigs were considered unclean by the Jews. And he, and he slaughtered the pig on the altar of the Lord. Okay. They set the pig ablaze, and then they tried to make some of the Jewish people eat the meat. Now, um, the men refused. I'm sorry, this is a little bit grim, but bear with me. Um, the men refused, so they, they cut their tongues out, and they scalped them, they cut off their hands and their feet, and they burnt the men on the altar of the Lord. And after this, the Jews began the War of Independence under the Maccabean leaders, and, and it's celebrated um, as the holiday of Hanukkah, which you may have heard of. So, under the might of the Maccabees, uh, Jerusalem was freed. And when Jerusalem was freed, after this horrible attack, the people came back into the city and they carried these palm leaves. And so, when Jesus comes in, sitting on a donkey, and they take the leaves... There's real significance in that symbolism. Because for them, it meant, it meant political redemption. It meant relief from the oppressor, from the, from the, from the heretics and from the, from the people that, that, that were uh, anti-God. And so they were looking for a certain kind of saviour, a certain kind of messiah. And he, after all, Jesus had fed the... He'd fed the hungry, he'd, he'd healed the sick, um, he came to dwell with people, and so they, they were understandably expectant. Um, but actually, Jesus came to change people's hearts, not, um, not provide political redemption. Now, the next thing, if we can flick on to the next slide. Um, I don't know whether you're aware of this. I was looking at this, um, this book called The Last Week by Marcus Borg and Dominic Croson, and in this uh, book... Um, Apparently, there's some historical evidence that there was another procession on this day. Um, and this was a procession led by our friend Pontius Pilate. And, and apparently, he led a procession of Roman cavalry um, and centurions into the city of Jerusalem. And so I want us to think about that for a minute. Why were, the, why were there these two processions? Um, from the western side of the city, which is the opposite side to the side that Jesus came in on. So you have to imagine these two, these two events happening in parallel. Um, Pontius Pilate arrives with, the, with, the, um, with his procession, and each soldier would be clad in leather, they would have a sword, um, and they would have their armour polished, um, they would uh, have um, on their head their helmets, 
Um, you know, it would have been sunny, they would have had their scabbards and um, all their armor, and they would have carried a spear, or, or if they were bowmen, they would have carried bows, and they would have been beating, um, um, they would have had drums to beat, beat out the march, the cadence for the march. So in other words, this is no ordinary entry into Jerusalem. Why were they doing it? Well, this was the Passover feast. And what that meant was that um, this is essentially the Jewish people remembering their deliverance from an oppressive regime. And so imagine that the, the Jewish people um, in, enjoying this, this uh, going into this, into this uh, feast, going into this, into this festival, and the Romans were nervous. They were nervous because they didn't want to have another uprising. I think in, in four, um, I think 4 AD, or was it 4 BC? Around the time, no, it was 4 AD, I think, there was, a, there was another uprising. Um, and um, what happened was the, um, um, it was five miles from Jesus' boyhood home, actually, in, in Nazareth, um, the city of Sepphoris, uh, which was the capital of Galilee, and the town of Emmaus that had been destroyed by the Roman army. They put down this, this, this revolt, and they, they went into Jerusalem, they pacified the city, and they crucified 2,000 people. So actually, there's a history of revolts and, and, and people being angry, um, so at this time of the Passover, Pilate comes in with the Roman army to say, um, we are intolerant of rebellion. We are intolerant of, of any kind of revolt. Um, and we are here to remind you what happened last time there was a revolt, if you like. So that was, I think it's a really amazing image. You know, they have, we have these two processions. One which is all about might and military power and political dominance, and the other which is about peace and a different kind of kingdom coming in with uh, spiritual principles. And yet the people didn't get it, did they, unfortunately? They didn't get it. So let's, let's move on, I think. Right, let's talk about the real spiritual problem. Why on earth did Jesus actually have to die? We're coming in to celebrate Easter now, so why, why did Jesus actually have to die? So going right back to the beginning, in Mark, in Mark chapter 7, um, Jesus says, out of the heart comes war, out of the heart comes murder and slander and all sorts of human misbehavior. Um, so the, the, the heart of man was the problem. Um, the sinfulness of man was the problem. And we can go right back to Genesis. So Genesis 2 verse 17 says this, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So something happened right back at the very beginning, which was that the human spirit became corrupted with sin. And, and into Adam and Eve came a sinful nature that has been passed down from generation to generation. And that sinful nature means that we're all separated from God without Jesus. So Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short, short of the glory of God. And the next verse, which I think I've got up there, yep, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus took upon himself not just all the wrong things that we've done, but the nature of sin that drove us to do it. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21 says, For, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So what was Jesus' mission? Why did he come? Um, why did he come to... to what, why was he manifested? 
1 John 3 verse 8 says this. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So this word destroy means to render powerless. It means to undo. So Jesus came to undo the work of the devil. And that work, right at the beginning, was to put sin nature into mankind, into our spirits. So he came to undo that, and he did that through Jesus. And... And we see that throughout, throughout Scripture. And actually, in fact, if you study the word sin in the singular versus sins in the plural, um, you find that sin in the singular often is referring to the nature of sin, the nature that drives this towards the acts of wrongdoing. Um, and this is, what, this is, I would suggest, what the real problem was. This is what Jesus came to address in mankind. Not just to forgive us of the things that we've done wrong, but to reposition us spiritually so that we wouldn't be legally children of the devil, but we would be legally and spiritually children of God. Amen? Does that make sense? So it wasn't just about forgiveness. It was about a complete exchange uh, and a complete substitution. So, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, and actually, I understand that the translation there, surely die, can mean in dying you will die. So they didn't physically die immediately, but spiritually they, they did die immediately. And that spiritual death led to physical death later on. Romans 5 verse 12 says, says this. Um, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that's Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men um, because all sinned. So whether you know that or not, or whether we like it or not, every person that's born into this world is born with that legal inheritance of sin nature and being spiritually and legally in the wrong kingdom. And until we come to God and receive forgiveness through Jesus, that remains the case. And by the way, death doesn't mean the cessation of existence. It doesn't mean to, to, to stop existing. Death, in the Bible, it always means um, separation. So when we die, uh, when, we, when our bodies die, our, our bodies are separated from our spirits and our souls. Um, and, 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 and spiritual death is separation from the presence of God. That's what it means. Okay, let's, let's move on. I think I've said enough about that. Um, Let's have a look at Isaiah 53, verse 6. It says this, um, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, and I want to just think about this word iniquity, the iniquity singular of us all. Um, Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it, this is speaking about Jesus. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Sin in the singular. John 1 verse 29. When John, this is John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is, this is the verse that I really do like. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. It says, For he made him, this is speaking about Jesus. This is um, the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthian church, explaining what Jesus has done. For he made him, to, uh, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a miracle. That's what Jesus has done on the cross. He's taken our sinfulness 
and replaced it with his righteousness. Um, that, that's, that's, I would suggest, his real mission. So if we, if we move on, so his real mission is salvation. If his mission wasn't to bring about political redemption, his mission was to bring about real salvation. And, by, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. He became what we used to be so that we could become who he is. He became what we were so that we could become what he is. He, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. What do we mean by righteousness? Does anyone, anyone have a, a definition for righteousness? It's a hard word to define, I think. Anyone offer up an idea? Made clean? Yeah, good one, Brian. Right standing with God. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to define righteousness as the ability to stand in the presence of God without the sense of guilt, without a sense of inferiority, just as though sin had never existed. Righteousness is the ability to stand in the presence of God without any sense of guilt or inferiority, just as though sin had never existed. And on the inside of you, if you know Jesus, your spirit is in that position. Your mind might not be thinking that way, but that's a different thing. So that's, that is righteousness, and that's what God has done through Jesus. Ephesians 4 verse 24 says this, that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and true holiness. Isn't that amazing? So that part of you on the inside has been made clean by Jesus. And I think the entire gospel, the entire message, the entire mission of Jesus is is all centered around his sacrificial death on the cross. Um, Hebrews 10 verse 14 Let's have a look. It's up, it's up there on the screen if you can read it. It says, For by one offering or, or one sacrifice, he, that's Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. He has perfected forever. Now that's, that's incredible. So not only has he perfected us, but it's forever. He has given us an eternal position of being acceptable to God. And, and that's why we, we are thankful. Amen? And it's on the basis of that that Paul writes in Philippians 4 verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory because of the cross. Okay. Let me skip forward a little bit. I want to just briefly mention this word, uh, this Hebrew word, uh, iniquity. It's actually the Hebrew word avon, um, which we translate as iniquity or sin, but actually the closest word in English is probably rebellion because all of us have gone our own way. Not all of us have committed murder or, 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 or robbed somebody or you know, that long list of sins that you see in the Bible. Not all of us have done all of those things, but all of us have gone our own way. That's rebellion, iniquity, avon. And, and the, the sense of this word is not just what we have done wrong, but the consequences associated with doing that. So um, what Jesus has done is take not just the actual wrongdoing, but the consequences of that wrongdoing and all the implications of that wrongdoing. He has taken that upon himself. Amen? 
which means that we don't have to live with the consequences of what we have done in, that, in, in the legal spiritual sense. So, um, he has put on Jesus the, the punishment, if you like, or the, God has put on Jesus the evil consequences that come in train with all those things that we've done wrong. And this is, um, I'm not, I don't have time to go into it, but in the Old Testament, there was a, on the Day of Atonement, there was a scapegoat. And, and this is Jesus very much uh, uh, fulfilling what was prefigured there in that, in that picture in the Old Testament. He became the scapegoat for us. Right, so I want to just talk about salvation before we finish today. So there are these different provisions that I believe God has given us through, through Jesus. Um, and, and salvation is not just a question of spiritual um, being, being made spiritually right with Jesus. There's more to it than, than that. Let's have a look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 5. I think that's on the uh, previous slide. Yeah, Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 5. And this is, again, uh, a passage which is prophesying about Jesus. Uh, and it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, which literally means sicknesses. And he has carried our sorrows, or the literal translation is pains. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And there's that word iniquities again. The chastisement or the punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So the truth here is that Jesus has accomplished in us, he's provided a spiritual redemption and also physical redemption in the sense that there is provision for healing within what Jesus has done on the cross. And actually, if we look into the New Testament, you see that the book of Matthew refers back to Isaiah 53 and it says, um, that he healed all the sick um, in fulfillment of this prophecy. And in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, the apostle talks about this scripture again, and he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that's the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, and by whose wounds we have been healed. So there is spiritual healing, and there is physical healing through what Jesus has done on the cross. And so that means that we can believe in faith for physical restoration as well as spiritual restoration. But there's also a legal provision, as I've said before, that legally speaking, we were children of the devil before we gave our lives to God. Which means, and if you don't know God, that means that unfortunately you're tied to the wrong kingdom. You're tied to a wrong kingdom that has a bad destiny. But Jesus has made provision for us to be spiritually aligned to him and his kingdom and to a much better eternity. Amen? And so the third aspect is really is really this legal change that happens on the cross. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness, that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. Um, he was made death. He, he actually physically died, but also he spiritually died, so that we could have resurrection life and eternal life um, with, with him, which is just a mystery and, uh, and just incredible, I think. There's also practical provision in salvation as well. Um, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty 
might become rich. What does this mean? When did Jesus become poor? I don't think Jesus was poor in his earthly ministry. I think he had enough, didn't he? I think actually he had more than enough. So I don't think this is talking about his earthly ministry. He, he, had, you know, he might not have carried wads of cash around with him, but he, he knew how to get... He, he was provided for by his father, wasn't he? It's a bit like having a, a credit card with your dad's name on it, isn't it? <laughs> you know, he had kind of unusual methods, I agree, you know, taking money out of fish's mouth and things like that. But he, he, he had, you know, he, he, he had an abundance. You know, somebody who feeds 5,000 men... I would suggest, is not considered poor. So what does it mean then? He, when did he become poor for our sakes? I think this is talking about him on the cross. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses talks about poverty and curses. And he sums it up as hunger, thirst, nakedness, and a need for all things. I think that's real poverty, isn't it? Hunger and thirst, nakedness, and a need for all things. And I would suggest that that's what Jesus did on the cross. And that's what he experienced on the cross. He was hungry. He hadn't eaten for at least 24 hours. We know he was thirsty because one of his last utterances uh, um, was, I I thirst, in John 19. Uh, He was naked. Unfortunately, uh, it's not something we normally see and think about, but um, there was real shame involved in crucifixion. It was one of the worst, horrible, shameful things that the Romans could come up with. and he was in need of all things. He had nothing at that point. He, he didn't own anything at that point. Uh, he, was in a, you know, he was buried in a, in a borrowed robe in, in, in a borrowed tomb. Um, but 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, Paul presents the positive side of this exchange. And he says that God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you always, having sufficiency in all things, have an abundance for every good work. So... He endured our poverty that we might share his abundance. I don't believe this is talking about us having millions of pounds in the bank. But I do believe that God wants us to have enough for our own needs and more than that for us to be able to give to others. Amen? I believe God wants us to have enough for our own needs and for us to be able to give to others. Because Jesus said he is more blessed to give than to receive. In Acts 20, verse 35, Paul quotes Jesus saying that. So I believe Jesus did become poor on that cross so that we can have an abundance. And an abundance in, in this country might look different to an abundance in other countries. But I think God will provide for our needs and help us to give to others because that's a spiritual principle. And just coming towards the end of this, this um, section on, on the cross then, I believe that Jesus also has made emotional provision for us. So... We've got spiritual provision. We've got forgiveness instead of punishment. We've got a blessing instead of curse. We've got physical provision. We can, and many of us here can testify that God has healed us physically. We have legal provision. Sin for for righteousness, death for life. And we have practical provision. Jesus took our shame for his glory, uh, emotional provision. Now, there are two, two or three words I just want to talk about. Shame and, shame and rejection, primarily. Um, these are some of the cruelest words we have in our, in our dictionary, aren't they? 
Um, but when Jesus died on the cross, he, he took our shame and he took our rejection. Um, as I said before, you know, dying on the cross was a shameful thing. Um, but yet, through that event, Jesus can remove our own shame and can remove our own guilt and can remove that feeling of, um, of, being, of in, inferiority that we're not able to stand before God. Amen? Um, and the final word is, is, is rejection. So I want to talk about this word rejection. Normally this stems from a broken relationship, doesn't it? You know, we, we see children in, in, in um, often in the earliest form, it's caused by parents who reject their own children. And that's why we have to be so careful with the words that we use with our own children. Um, that, they, that they know that we love them, and, and, and if, we, if we're not careful and we express ourselves in harsh, negative ways, they can interpret that as rejection. Um, and many of us have, you know, have, have, have experienced rejection in, other, in different forms throughout our lives, whether it's in our job or whether it's in our family or whether it's in, with our friendships. Um, and rejection is a really powerful negative emotion maker, isn't it? Um, many, many times it, it happens through the breakup of marriages as well. Um, there's a beautiful verse in, in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 6, it says this. The Lord, this is speaking about um, a wife that's been deserted by uh, her husband. It says, the Lord will call you back as if you were, were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. But the Lord will call you back, is what he says. The Lord will call you back. And that's what he's done through the cross. Um, Jesus himself experienced this rejection. When it says in, in Matthew 27, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, uh, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried out again in, in a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. So spiritually, he had become unacceptable to his father on the cross. And he experienced that rejection probably for the first time, not having that communion with, with his father. Um, and yet he experienced that which led to his physical death. Um, I think that probably is what killed him more than the physical reality of what was going on right then because he died earlier than was, was normal. And yet Jesus endured this rejection so that we can have God's acceptance. That God can say to us, you are acceptable to me. You are part of my family. You don't need to endure shame. You don't need to have poverty. You can, you can come into my family and be forgiven and healed. Amen? And this is what Jesus did. And this is what he was on the road to do when he was on that donkey. He knew that the Jews were, were, were thinking, this is it. This is, you're going to come into the city. You're going to kick the Romans out, and we're going to have a new kingdom. Um, but Jesus knew when he was on that donkey that I come in peace to establish a new spiritual kingdom so that you will have a new heart, a new spirit within you so that you will be in fellowship with God and I will take away your rejection and your shame and your dishonor and I will give you righteousness. And in fact, I will take upon myself all of your sin and the Avon, the, 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 the consequences of your sin and I will embody it in my own spirit on the cross and I will die so that God will raise me up as the firstborn of a new creation, so that you can be created like me. Isn't that amazing? Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
Jesus became a curse that we could receive the blessing. And I won't go into all of that stuff in Deuteronomy 28, but there's a real provision there for us to be set free from curses and set free from um, some of the things that we can pick up um, in this world. Complete provision with what Jesus has done on the cross. So this is just a summary. I picked this up from Derek Prince, wrote a book on the divine exchange, which is really good. I recommend it. It's also a book by Essek Kenyon on, on um, identification, which is a similar subject, um, which is really good. I recommend that as well. But this, this is what Jesus has done. He was punished that we might be forgiven. He was wounded that we might be healed. He was made sin with our sinfulness that we, were, we can be made righteous with his righteousness. He died our death that we might receive his life. Endured our poverty that we might share his abundance. He bore our shame that we might share his glory. And he endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance. Became a curse that we might have the blessing. And all of that is available to us. God's word says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Amen? And he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first step is just to recognize that there is unforgiven sin. And say, Lord, forgive me. Why don't we do that right now? Well, let's just close our eyes just for one minute. And if this prayer applies to you, um, then I just ask that you echo it in your own mind. God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and that there is unforgiven sin in my life. But I believe that Jesus was punished, that I might be forgiven. And so I ask you now, forgive all my sins in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you that you were punished, that I could be forgiven. That you were wounded, that I could be healed. Lord, I thank you that you were made sin, that you can make me righteous. That you took my place and you took my death, dying my death, that I could have your life. Lord, I thank you that you endured poverty and shame and rejection, that I could have your abundance and glory and acceptance. Thank you that you were made a curse so that I could have a blessing, something that wasn't deserved. Thank you, Jesus. When we distill it all down, the gospel is really simple. The message of salvation is really simple. And it simply means this, that God loved us so much that he sent his own son to die for us. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. As I read before, Romans 3 verse 23 said, says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that, if we don't do anything about it, we don't believe in Jesus, is, is death. But the gift of God that we can receive freely is eternal life. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because it's with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Amen. I just want to finish by, by um, playing a video. It's a, a song um, by a guy called Keith Green, and it's, and it's his testimony, and uh, it's just a slightly different take on, on the message of salvation. So it's three or four minutes. The words will come up on the screen. As you listen to this song, if you feel God stir you to respond... And, it, and I got a sense when I was speaking just, just then that some of us have been Christians for years and we haven't really understood what Jesus has done on the cross.
And if, you know, if that's you and you want to just commit your life again to God, I'm happy to pray with you here at the front. Um, if you've never made that commitment, come down today and I'll pray with you at the front. And others will do that as well. Uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.